Okay, here we go, here we go. Gaudete Sunday. So you remember now, if you keep the rhythm of the Christian life, that the penitential seasons of Advent and Lent can become a bit heavy. So you wear the purple in the penitential seasons, Jesus the King who goes to the cross. But everybody knows that uh, if, you, if you're fasting for Advent or if you uh, fast for Lent or if you're doing something, these things can become a bit heavy. And so the church recognizes that. And in the fourth, sorry, in the third week, of the four weeks of Advent, Gaudete, rejoice, right? And so the candle is pink and uh, the vestments go rose. By the way, I have a brilliant idea and I, I want to just say that this idea is, is so good that it has been pre-approved by none other than Carol Tonys. I, I'm not against the Advent wreath. I'm just against little baby sissy Advent wreaths. I want to get a big Advent wreath about as big as the font and put real greens on it and big candles and hang it from the ceiling. Yes. Carol has approved the design. John has approved the motor that will run it up and down to light the candles. <laughs> All I need, as I've told you a zillion times, is cash. I'd be a fabulous pastor. If I had 10 million bucks, you wouldn't even recognize me how good I am. So if I had, you know, 25,000 bucks to build this advent wreath, next year you could welcome the baby Jesus in style, but I digress. <laughs> it's Gaudete, the Sunday to rejoice in the midst of your suffering. And so um, those lights just went out. We need another 10,000 bucks. Oh, vicar. <laughs> Yeah, that was good, Vicar. Yeah, start to break things as I talk about money. That's good. That's, how, that's, a, that's exactly what you want to do. Good job. That was really nicely played. So uh, anyway, and then you remember Laudate in the fourth of the six weeks of, uh, of Lent. So you get this time where you can sort of like, you know, take a little time off and relax. So that accounts then for the change in colors and the character of this prayer. Here we go. Fold your hands, close your eyes. O Lord, accept our prayer and supplication and grant that we may hear the call of John to prepare the way for your son and receive him into our hearts, that we may become your children. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. It's a very nice sermon this morning uh, about how John remains in service to Jesus even unto death. That was very, very well played. So a couple of things now, uh, all kinds, you know, this we're rushing toward Christmas. It was very nice to have 300 people in service this morning. I mean, when, you, when everybody turns out, it's quite, quite remarkable. The music was great and Peter was great and you were fabulous and it was a lot of fun. The sermon was very, very nice. You know, this notion of a faithful John right to the end. Uh, so, you know, hang in there as things come forward. Uh, thanks for Christmas sharing yesterday. You know that's uh, a big deal for us. It's changed over the years. But Carol wrote me an email late last night with the numbers. So 257 families were invited. So that means we were um, aiming at uh, basically almost 1,200 folks and 700 kids. That's pretty good, right? That's nice. And 90% uh, of them showed up, and that's one of the challenges of Christmas sharing with people who maybe don't have a tank of gas or have conflicting schedules or their car doesn't start right. But if we get 90, I think we got 91% of the people, that was great. Plus, the visual is fabulous. If you came for a catechumenate or drove by, I mean, it was literal. I mean this in a literal way. It was beautiful to watch the organization. 
It was beautiful the way it was set up and people were very calm and there were lots of people. You know, that was, that's always nice. If you have an event like this and two or three people show up, you go, oh, that's, you start to pity them. But there were so many people and every time I sort of looked at it, they were moving things, but people in a calm, sort of beautiful way. It was really, really well done. So thanks to Carol, but I know it's not just Carol. Uh, I know it's everybody, but on the other hand, Carol has already started on Christmas sharing 2023. So it is Carol, right? So you have to kind of, you have to think it all the way through. Uh, so we're very grateful. Now leave Carol alone for a month. She needs to get some rest and that would be important. Uh, it's the barbecue truck on Wednesday. Is it not? Is it the barbecue truck on Wednesday? You should come to dinner at six o'clock on Wednesday. Come on. The barbecue truck is going to be here. So uh, it'll be great. What time? 5.45. Is it 5.45? Work it out among yourselves. Come for barbecue. The staff's in full revolt. It's Christmas. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, so uh, next week we're not going to meet in here because I'm going to say everything I'm going to say and then you're going to be sick of me. And that's a good break point. There will be Sunday school and... and uh, but you can bring donuts and sit downstairs and talk to each other. But um, you know, how much of this can you take? Now, I've already had the very helpful suggestion from folks right here that instead of practicing the disciplines for Advent like the rest of the Christian church on earth, we just swap families. Because <laughs> you tend to be nice to other people. And so we just like, we take the licks. I mean, we would take Nora and David, they would be fabulous plus one less mouth to feed, and, you know, we're on a budget. So, uh, you know. <laughs> All right, so uh, here we go. This is, not, this is not difficult for you. One of the, you know, the thing to remember is love takes practice. Being a Christian takes practice. Believing takes practice. So as I said to you last time, there isn't anything you don't know in what I'm going to say. The, 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 the question is, can you put the pieces together? It's a bit of a Rubik's Cube. Can you, you know, turn all the pieces so that they turn out the way they're supposed to turn out? Ah, that's the hard part, right? And it's not just a matter of, at least for most people at St. John, you're, you're pretty bright and you've studied pretty hard, so you know a lot of stuff, but ah, where's the rub, right? So again, Christmas sharing is a great example. That's a great example of people practicing their love, right? And it, you can see it. I mean, you look out there and you just, you know, you, it just is, it's gorgeous what is happening. Right? And you, but that was hard won. Christmas sharing was hard won over more than a decade, right? So, you know, here we go. Uh, how do you do this? And so I gave you some of the, you know, at least preliminary things that you should engage it as hard work to do and you should uh, embrace it with uh, the best possible intentions. And then you should remember what the Lord has done. So I gave you the example of baptism and uh, Jesus fishes in the font with a harpoon like Captain Ahab, right? There's a big barb on that. And so he holds you very close and he's put his name on your children and on your family and he's taken them near. Now, the problem of course is um, <laughs> your family's actually gonna come home. And uh, they're not going to be, always be exactly what you thought they were, what they are were when you saw them left, last. And, you know, there's going to be rubs that have lasted for decades, and you're going to have some natural responses to that. Among them is our losses 
are real wounds. Our losses are real wounds where relationships didn't gel, where people <coughs> dismissed each other, where kids disappointed you, where you disappointed your kids. Okay, just, you know, I don't need to tick these all off. There are real losses and our losses can make us quite angry. And that's a natural reaction. The question, of course, is what you do with the anger. And everybody sort of needs to pull on the same end of the rope here. I mean, it's much more difficult if you're the only one in the room trying to quell the anger if everybody else is stoking it. But for you at least, and the discipline of Advent, and again, the rhythm of life, and then the discipline of Lent, is to say, at least for me, I'm gonna practice being a Christian. Love takes practice, belief takes practice, I'm gonna have a go at this. And so I warned you last week, this is a point number six, I warned you that you have uh, a couple of possibilities. One is to be right all the time, to be a justice person. But if you insist on that, at the end of the day, everybody's dead. The other way is the way of Jesus, which is to be a mercy person, and at the end of the day, he's dead. I do not underestimate the difficulty that it takes to die for the good of your family or to die for relationships that never worked. I, you know, I don't, I don't underestimate how difficult it is. I mean, our calendars are full with people uh, of, of families who are wounded, particularly at these times of year. You know, okay, we know it's coming. You know, drop the storm shutters. Figure out an escape plan, right? Stock up on good stuff. This is gonna happen, and uh, when it happens, it's gonna make you angry. At the point of anger, you can either be a justice person, you can ride that hard, uh, and at the end, everybody will lie at your funeral because there's nothing left good to say, or uh, you can be a mercy person and people say, um, can you, can, can't believe we got over that. So, you know, I, I sort of, uh, and I sort of, you know, warned you with Ephesians, and I gave you the example of Jesus who forgives in advance, right? So, you know, so often, this is somewhere else buried in here, but whatever, it's an outline, so I don't have to follow it. Somewhere, um, you know, just remember that your forgiving doesn't have to do with anybody else's repenting. Right, see, if you'll, if you'll forgive, if, if you'll repent, then I'll forgive. I dare you to find that in Scripture. I dare you. It's not there. Your forgiving has nothing to do with other people's repenting in the first analysis. So they're nailing Jesus to the cross, and he says something that I would colloquially translate like, Father, forgive them. These idiots have no sense of what they're doing. <laughs> so here's the Son of God, in flesh, diable, and so they kill him. And as they nail him to the cross, Jesus says, um, hey, if you've got some spare time, could you forgive these guys? Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't have a clue. Which may be how you feel about your kids or your parents or the people you're gonna see. It doesn't matter because um, you're forgiving. Your job is to forgive, their job is to repent. Don't do their job, do your job. Do your job. Your job is to repent, it takes practice, right? So that's point six, I'm at point seven. Now, um, if you're not angry, then you're probably worried. And, you know, I probably deal with more worry than I do, than I do with anger. And, you know, there's, of course, reasons to worry. The reasons you worry are that you can, um, 
see bad things happening to people you love, right? And that distresses you because you love them and you know, you just wish they would quit hitting their thumb with that hammer, but they don't, you know, you know? Every year they come to your house and hit their thumb with a hammer and you think to yourself, I wonder if we could just have a Christmas without the thumb hammering. But you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, you worry about all kinds of things. And you know, Luther is dying, or they thought he was dying. He actually lived through this one. Melanchthon comes to him, young protege, best friend kind of guy. And Luther looks up and says, you know, with your worries, you give weapons to Satan. And then he didn't die. But of course, Melanchthon had worried all the way through to his death, just the way you worry all the way through to dead. You worry about that, right? And then it never happens. But all that energy and time and money you could have put into something productive, like, I don't know, forgiving people or practicing being a Christian or working on love, because love takes practice. The question, of course, really is then, you know, how do you, how do you stop worrying? And we did this, you know, we did this for weeks, but I remind you what it is, you know. Perfect love casts out fear. So worry is just low-grade fear. It's like when you have a low-grade temperature. The doctor says, what's your temperature? You say, you know, 100.5, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, probably not a big enough deal for you to come in, but you should pay attention to it, but it's really not even a fever. So worry is just low-grade fear. And so the cure is the same. Um, the cure for fear is love. And if you turn the page, I give you, you know, the great example of that, which you've seen a zillion times before, right? This beautiful Rembrandt of the prodigal son, which is the only story you ever need. If there was only one page out of the Bible and you had this page, you'd be fine. As he says at the end, this is my son. He was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. How does the father resurrect him? Think of the father as Jesus. The father runs to the prodigal son, so you run to your children or your in-laws or your parents or whomever you're alienated. You run to them. You throw your arms around them. When they try to make excuses or cut a deal, you hush them with a kiss and good clothes and um, you know sandals and the family crescent ring, the signet ring, and you rejoice that people are back together again. How do you, if you can imagine, uh, if you can imagine, you know, what do I do exactly? I mean, every mother in this room knows what to do. If your child is crying, you hold them dear, right? If you, if you have a new baby and you hold it out like this, it will continue to wail, <laughs> right? If you hold it here, the child knows that you're in love, that it is loved that all is well. So when the prodigal comes home to his father and his father throws his arms around him, he squeezes the fear right out of him. There's nothing to fear because the father cares for him. So you might practice that, right? Why are you so worried? Because you can't feel the touch of Jesus, because you can't feel the hug of your heavenly father. Why are you so worried? Because you don't listen to the words that are being spoken into your ear. I love you, you're mine, I care for you, all be well, I'll watch over this, um, you know. So both anger and worry are utterly unnecessary. We're really good at it. Worry takes practice too. So does anger. But um, there's no payoff, and so I turn the page to you. 
I know that sometimes you despair of, your, of yourself and of your family and you know, of your relationships and of your friends. Jesus despaired of Israel. There's only a couple times when Jesus wept in the scriptures. One is when his best friend Lazarus dies, good friend Lazarus dies. Jesus wept. But another is when he comes to Jerusalem and he's looking out over the city and he feels like his career has been a wreck. That nothing really worked. And nobody ever really listened. Israel didn't pay attention. John 1, you'll hear it for Christmas. And he came to his own and his own knew him not. But to those who knew him, he gave the power to become sons of God. But Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, he weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you. What's the image? Like a mother gathers a child. Like a hen gathers chicks, the divine feminine in Jesus. Which is why everybody should rethink their assumptions about gender-specific attributes. Since Jesus is a mother, hen. Which is why I constantly try to elevate virtue above gender, for example, or roles or identity. Because virtue is the thing that holds because it's drained out of the heart of God. So a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, you got the brilliant little welcome from Gilbert Mylander, uh, genius of a guy and a great person, about how our love isn't really love until it's redeemed. It's just, you know, human love is nothing until it's forgiven. It's beautiful stuff. Anyway, you despair. Um, Well, you know, so did Jesus, but how can you be hopeful or how can you be merciful or what can I do, right? Point number nine. I was thinking about Father Joe yesterday. This I regularly, any intern I have or vicar or anybody who thinks they're going to seminary, I have them read this book about a priest in whose care I would love to be, right? And at some point he says, you know, we never really listen very well, do we? And you will find in the Christian life, um, so many people are give, devoted to talking, but it's the listeners who will do you well. So this bit from now on. To listen is very hard because it asks so much interior stability that we no longer need to prove ourselves by our speeches, arguments, statements, or declarations. You know, basically what he's saying is, Only good Christians are good listeners. Love takes practice, belief takes practice, listening takes practice, and a prerequisite for being a good listener is to be a good lover. A prerequisite for being a good listener is to be a good Christian. Because otherwise, as Luther says, we're just focused in on ourselves, Luther's definition of sin. We're curved in upon ourselves. And when we only think about ourselves, only I'm the only important thing or I'm the most important thing, I thought, what you have to say doesn't really matter, does it? Because I'm the only important thing. So to listen is very hard. True listeners no longer have an inner need to make their presence known. They're free to receive, to welcome, to accept. Well, this is no way to get anything done. Listening is much more than allowing another to talk while waiting for the chance to respond. You've all had this. You're talking to somebody, you wanna connect, 
You want to love them. You want to find common ground. You want to repair wounds. You want to, you want to, you want to cover losses. But you can feel that everything you say is being lined up for a counterattack. That's not listening. That's a counterattack. <laughs> listening is paying full attention to others and welcoming them into our beings. The beauty of listening is that those who are listened to start feeling accepted, start taking their words more seriously and discovering their own true selves. I said this before, but I'll say it again. You know, these Catholics, they're a bit rogue, uh, but who run all these ads, you know, um, the Come Home series, and now the same people, I think, who are running this um, Jesus Knows series. Have you been watching this? Where Jesus disagreed, but he didn't disown people? Have you, you seen it? I'm sort of like, who's ever running this is a flipping genius. Because they say the things that need to be said, which is, Jesus didn't always agree. So you're going to disagree with people, but he didn't disown. He held them dear. He listened. And then he salved them, right? And then this, listening is a form of spiritual hospitality, right? Somebody this morning says to me, you know, looks out at all of you and goes, this is remarkable. I've never seen anything like this. Not, this is somebody who's not here all the time. I've never seen anything. I said, you know, it is actually pretty remarkable. It was remarkable seeing the kids play with each other and nobody's crying. It was remarkable that parents could kind of let their kids tear around and be safe. It was remarkable, and this is one of the most remarkable things about downstairs at St. John, nobody's alone. And I want to encourage you, if you ever see anybody alone, to break off what you're doing and go talk to that person. It's one of the most remarkable things about St. John. People are not alone and kids are not alone. If I see a kid alone, I personally go get another kid to go talk to that kid, and two or three if I can find them, and I just want to compliment your kids on the ability to do that when I ask them. One is I'm asking them to do a hard thing. Two is they're actually doing what I ask them to do. And three is it makes all the difference because that same kid then comes back next week because they finally found a place where somebody would include them, where somebody would listen to them and make them feel accepted, where somebody would give them spiritual hospitality in addition to a cup of coffee and a place to park, which of course are important too. This takes work. It takes intention because most people feel alone and unloved. So I turn the page. This is number 10. Um, the church just cannot repent enough for the evil that it's done. I know that we're on the other side of this, and I know the church feels like it's under attack, and in many places it is. You know, if you're in church in northern Nigeria today, there's a good chance somebody's going to pull up on a motorcycle and hack you with a machete. It doesn't even get reported anymore. It's so common. So, you know, the church is under attack, but it's always been under attack. Here's the big point. That has nothing to do with the fact that the church has done evil again and again and again and again and again. From wars to trying to make advance by political power to the normal thievery and lying and chicanery that goes on among human beings to sexual abuse. You know, 
we are getting everything we deserve in one sense because whoever was in charge was not careful as they were in charge and they did not live in the way of Jesus. So part of the reason people don't come to church and part of the reason your kids go away and don't come back, part of the reason is they're ashamed of you and they're ashamed of me. And we need to own that and repent of that. That said, they're often very ashamed of themselves because they've gone off and done things that they know that you don't approve of. And they've been places where you won't go. And they've also met friends whom they love dearly who are very devout Hindus, for example. And we never talked about that in high school Bible study. Actually, a little secret, we actually did talk about that. They just weren't, point number nine, listening. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we didn't do a very good job, especially over the last two or 300 years. We haven't done a very good job in the church and um, we're suffering for our sins. All of that said, that doesn't make everything else better than the church. And that's a very important point. Despite the evils of people in the church and despite the evil that the church has done, the church is not evil. The church is the body of Christ. This is why it's a hundred times more important right now than it was half an hour ago that you act like Christians that you practice love, that you listen to other people. It's so important because so many other people have not done it. This was the whole deal about, I'm just gonna pastor my two square blocks because nobody else will pay attention because they can't listen, okay. But in this two square blocks, I know exactly the kind of church I want. It's the church I wanna belong to. It's the church I want you to belong to. It's the church I want where your kids will feel welcome and you can bring your friends and people show them hospitality. I want a church where your children are safe. It takes an incredible amount of energy and commitment. Christmas sharing, right? I was only, I wasn't kidding that Carol will start on 2023 this afternoon. That's your response, last night, yeah. <laughs> sorry, you should get full credit for the exam, I'm sorry. She did email me at 9.27 and I emailed her back at 9.31 and I think I might have said in there, did I not say, take a little time off? Did I not say that to you? Yes. Do you listen to what I say and obey? No, you don't. Look at what you, just like everybody else, as good as you are. Carol's the best. Right? So you say to yourself, you know, what a mess, what are we going to do? I mean, the answer is always the same. It's, it's love. Love quells anger. Love pushes out fear. Love welcomes people who are threatened. It's always love. And the knee-jerk reaction of the church to use power, which is very linear and very effective and also doesn't extend into eternity, and that's the problem with it. It's very effective now, and you can look very good in the short term. But the long term, the eschatological term, is always won by love. And so... Uh, that's the only story there is in Scripture, and if you don't believe that, stick around because it's going to be Good Friday and then it's going to be Easter fairly soon. 
flip the page. In the end, our children are just like us. So this is what they need to hear. And I've um, tried to say this in different ways, and then I've learned to... Um, I've learned to, uh, or I've learned now that I've found other saints and angels who said the same thing. But I said it to you this way. Jesus loves me. Jesus never leaves me. Jesus never hurts me. That's I, in my head. I say that over and over again. And I've said it to you. But look, it's everywhere. St. Teresa, and I'm tracking down which St. Teresa it is because it was just sent this way. But I think it's Avila with that spelling. But God knows it and God loves me. Same, same. Whatever you're angry about, God knows it and God loves you. Whatever you're worried about, God knows it and God loves you. Whatever you're ashamed of, God knows it and God loves you. Julian of Norwich. God made it, God loves it, God keeps it. In these truths, stay and grow. So um, it's very interesting that your sins and mine manifest in different ways. So my sin manifests as anger, my sin manifests as worry, my sin manifests as shame. And then it's very interesting that in each case the cure is the love of Jesus. And of course this is why I, you know, for the zillionth time will say to you that the Eucharist is the center of the world because the Eucharist is Jesus' touch to you. The bells ring like a doorbell. Jesus is here. And you bend your knee to that and adore it. Right? That's why you're on your knees when all that's happened. That's why the pastor genuflects. Because Jesus has arrived. He's arrived to put his touch on you. He's arrived to put his loving touch on you. He's arrived, as Norman Nagel would say, to forgive more sins than you've got. And the only way they can hurt you is if you take them back. Genius kind of stuff. So you should remember, and I've given you this, that your forgiveness waits in advance. And then um, if your forgiveness waits in advance, you should start stop muttering and wondering and kicking the dirt and staring off in the wrong direction wondering whether or not you should start now. I can tell you what the answer is. You should start now. Now. It's not that many days till Christmas. This would be a good day to start loving the people that you hate and welcoming the people you can't stand and embracing the people who've disappointed you. This is a good day for it. It's a good day to go to the Eucharist and then take whatever Jesus gives you and to give it to somebody else. Because you know, Love takes practice. So, um, here we go then. And, you know, if you need help, if you need worry, there's none, better, uh, there's none better to cure you or give you an example than that rogue Saint Augustine. He's a bright boy, then he goes off to the big city, goes to Rome, and he gets all tangled up with the Gnostics, and he thinks he needs to get rid of his body. And since his body doesn't matter, he takes a mistress. And since his mistress doesn't matter, he has a child, and his mother, you know, worries about him constantly. That's why Monica is a saint. It's Saint Monica, because Augustine was a bum <laughs> until he was about 30. And then Jesus decided that, you know, his prayers would be answered in Ambrose of Milan, who was the genius of a bishop. And when you go, go deep into the basement of 
the Cathedral of Milan, and you can see the spot, the pit, the font, where Ambrose baptized Augustine. So St. Ambrose baptized St. Augustine. Uh, the Bishop of Milan baptized the Bishop of Hippo. And then, a bit of self-awareness. I came to you late, O oh beauty, so ancient and so new. I came to love you late. As even in this is hope for your parents who don't leave or your children who have wandered. Sometimes people just come late. You were within me and I was outside where I rushed about wildly searching for you like some monster loose in your beautiful world. Isn't that great? I mean, if you could have one headline that could end up 2022, you know, the 31st of December, 2022, it'd be great if um, the New York Times headline read something bold like, uh, monsters loose in a beautiful world. I'd pay money to have that be the headline for the last day of this year. You were with me, but I was not with you. You see how beautiful that is? You were with me. This is why when we pray things like, you know, I'm always, I'm always stunned in my own prayers, but also in yours, how often we pray for things that we already have. You were with me. The reason I asked Jesus to be with me is to remember that he's already with me. You were with me, but I wasn't with you. You know, because I couldn't listen, because I was ashamed, because I got distracted and followed a shiny object, because I wandered like a prodigal son. Pick something. One sin's as good as another, friends. So um, any one of them will do you in. But that means also then you shouldn't be superior to other people who have a different sin than your own because, you know, you didn't pick any better in your sinfulness. You called me, you shouted to me, you wrapped me up in your splendor, you broke my deafness, you bathed me in your light, you sent my blindness reeling. You gave out such a delightful fragrance. There you go, beauty, right? Why is there incense? Jesus likes it, the devil hates it. You gave out such a delightful fragrance and I drew it in and came breathing hard after you. Isn't that interesting? The incense is what got him in the end. The smell of Jesus. I tasted and it made me hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned to know your peace. Now, what should you do? Um, given all that. I mean, besides, you know, straightening yourself out. <laughs> when, you, when you see somebody else is a sinner, you should spend some time straightening yourself out. Preparation for what comes next. A couple of things which you already know, but I'll just remind you and then you can do that. One is, um, you can carry your children to Jesus in prayer. And when we come back, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what to do in the spring, but I think we may talk some about prayer because um, it's a difficult thing that's often a failure and can make you feel guilty but is the one thing that can change everything. So you remember the story, they bring the paralytic, they drop him down, Jesus looks at him, Jesus looks at the friends and then heals that guy over there. This is the most amazing thing that kind of blows up the, you know, I decide for Christ and name and shame. He looks at these people over here and he heals this guy. He looks at these people over here and he 
forgives this guy. He looks at you and he forgives your children. He looks at you and he heals your children. He looks at you and he forgives your parents. He looks at you and he heals the people down the block. That's what happens, right? So one thing you can do, if you say to me, what directly can I do? You can carry your people to Jesus, right? Then turn the page. Second one. You've got this one too. We did this. You can make Jesus be for your children. This is Kleinig, right? And if any, if any lightning strikes, I'm going to redirect it to the southern coast of Australia. Because I didn't say this. Kleinig said this. You can make Jesus be for your children. The woman who comes begging that Jesus would cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus sort of ignores her. And she's screaming. But the key is she's screaming the right thing. Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. You have to put it together from two verses. Lord have mercy, Kyrie eleison, right? Classic thing that we say as we approach the altar. Classic way to cleanse a room of demons. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Because when the Lord's there and he's being merciful, nobody's condemned, everything's forgiven. So you can, you know, carry your children to Jesus like a paralytic, or you can beg for mercy as if your kid had a demon. You can make Jesus be for your kid. It's a reason to pray. We underestimate um, how dearly Jesus loves us and how much he would like to save us all. And then just, you know that, so I'm, I'm going to depend a little bit on you remembering what's been taught here in the past and putting the pieces together. Your problem largely in mind is not knowledge. You're smart people, and by and large, you've studied hard. Your problem isn't knowledge. Your problem is practice. Your problem is application. You know, you know what your golf swing should look like, and then you just keep pushing it to the right. You just keep pushing it to the right, you know. So here's what I would say then, and we did this, I don't know if you remember, we did this about six weeks ago, and I, but I'm circling back to it. We, I sort of gave you the ontological explanation, the existential explanation, the how it really happens explanation of people coming to Jesus. The good news is, is it doesn't have to run linearly, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You just look for an opening. So as you're loving the people around your Christmas table, as you're with your next door neighbors who just build a fence that spoiled your view, right? Um, you're with uh, parents or in-laws or aunts or uncles or children or cousins who are making you absolutely crazy. You remember that the discipline of Advent is to love them and that'll take some practice. And practice isn't just like you go do whatever you want. Practice is you practice. You do the things that you've been given to do. Okay. This is what faith, this is what the Christian life looks like. At some point, you can wake up at any point in this, right? And you can have more things. I, I could make this list much longer because there's more experiences. But some time you wake up and you say, I'm really grateful for the family I have. Or you look outside and you go, this is a remarkable thing. And of course, then you'll hear in, in your ear, I pray you'll hear my voice, that beauty is a way of knowing God. Pause. Sometimes come to me, people come to me and say, well, you know, I've thought it through and I've lost my faith. Which then I have to, because I'm practicing spiritual hospitality and listening carefully, I don't react, but inside I'm 
mildly chuckling. Because, I didn't know if you know this, but there's other ways of knowing things besides thinking about things. Good old Bruce here. Nicest man. Not only got a big brain, but a big heart. If you want to go to get to know Bruce, you can talk to him. You can talk to his brain. But you know what? You can just love him too, and he'll understand that. It's a way that Bruce can get to know you. You can know things through love. You can know things through beauty. You can know things through reason. You can know things in all sorts of ways. You can know things through suffering. We're in an era where rationality, where reason, where only our brains, only our minds, only the way we think uh, is um, acceptable. I've told you this. this is, we're in a world that privileges science. Science is good. It's fabulous. Don't be a science denier. But science makes boundaries. And then it only goes to the boundaries. And it's so clever that it all works inside. Things that don't work get pitched away. Things that do work get tested and never tested. Right down here in the corner, two plus two equals four every time. Unless time and space get bent by Einstein, but we're still working on that. Okay, so, but that doesn't mean that's the only game. The church is here and it's bounded by love, by the incarnation, you know, by uh, the heart of God, which is the Gopic and thinks more about you. God would rather die than punish you for your sins. And that's true and this is true. The only thing that's not true is that this is all there is or that this is all there is. The other thing that's not true is when you stack rank this, if this gets to be a point number one or anything else gets to be a point number one, then that's not true. But all these ways of knowing are true. We've talked about this for years. So you can start anywhere you want. If your bright kids come home from college, you could start with their brains. But if one of them has fallen in love, you might as well start there. If somebody just declared as an art major and you wanted her to be an engineer, try to stay with it. <laughs> There's things that you can learn from Rembrandt. Wherever you can find an opening in this path, find an opening. Number 16, and I am at odds with more than half of Christianity and a bunch of people in the Missouri Senate about this. Pastors who think their job is to straighten people out, which couldn't be farther from their job because it's wholly under the law. We do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely. Jesus Christ is the light, the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. By showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I've given you Pooh, and I'll give you the reminder to um, tell people that you love them. I have to be careful, you know. Occasionally at the restaurant, when I say to the waitress, 
I love you, I only get about a 50-50 positive hit rate. <laughs> I only ever do it if I'm with somebody else, preferably my wife. <laughs> but there's Pooh, I'm foolish and deluded. No, you're the best bear in all the world. Am I? And he brightened up suddenly. Law, gospel, hope. Conviction, forgiveness, future. If you don't believe me, believe Winnie the Pooh. Turn the page. You should never stop. Um, you should read the Desert Mothers and Desert Fathers. You know, if you sit in the desert for 10 years and um, live from, with the scorpions surrounding you and the demons attacking you, you actually learn stuff. John the Baptist, you know, knew things that his disciples didn't know as you learned from the sermon this morning. No matter what kind of bitterness befalls you, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what unpleasantness happens to you, no matter how much you suffer, say, I will endure this for Jesus Christ. This is right at the point where I would say this and somebody would say, God, you just don't understand. You don't understand how bad it is for me. You're not in my shoes. How could you understand? You're a white man over 60. I'm a fill in your blanks. So you couldn't possibly understand. Which, of course, is true if you think that virtue isn't at the top of the heap, but if virtue isn't at the top of the heap, we have a similar shared life experience. And if you think that God is at the top of that heap, then everything's going to be okay. Just say it, and it'll be easier for you. Navy SEALs, think it, see it, say it, do it the little thing that's used to, um, before you go shoot bin Laden between the eyes. Everybody knows this is gonna be difficult. How do we prepare and calm our worry? There's some breathing, there's some preparing, and then the mental, think it, see it, say it, do it. For the name of Jesus is powerful. In his presence, all unpleasant events are quelled. Demons vanish, your annoyance will abate, your faint-heartedness will be set at ease when you repeat his sweetest name. And then I just, I'll leave you with this. Don't give up on yourself. And I, you know, if I could wish you one thing, maybe this would be it. The voice of Jesus says, do not judge yourself. Do not condemn yourself. Do not reject yourself. You see, you're saying it. You're not thinking it, you're not seeing it, and you're saying the wrong thing. And you become what you say, just like you become what you think. Just like you become what you see, you become what you taste. The Eucharist is the center of life. Do not judge yourself, do not condemn yourself, do not reject yourself. Let my love touch the deepest, most hidden corners of your heart and reveal to you your own beauty, a beauty that you have lost sight of, but, will, but which will become visible to you again in the light of mercy. The voice of Jesus says, come, come, let me wipe away your tears. Let my mouth come close to your ear and say to you, I love you, I love you, I love you. If you want the full explanation of that, it's under the piece I've given you many times before from Norman Nagel, which maybe is the best thing he ever wrote, you know? Quite remarkable stuff. I, I'm happy every once in a while I come across a note that Norman wrote me. I find it in a file somewhere, uh, uh, you know, the joy of that memory. So that's all you need. It's not that you don't know it. Biggie, if you don't know, now you know. <laughs> it's only for some of you.
The rest of you are too pure-hearted to live in Brooklyn. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you soon.